Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 353 of your Tech Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Lime Rebel, an interview with Dr. Ava Shapi. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, this is actually going to be a longer preview than we've ever given before, because this was one of the most densely packed podcast episodes we've ever done. We named this episode The Lime Rebel because a rebel is defined as a person who breaks rules that hold back themselves and others. And thank God this Lime Rebel exists because this person is responsible for making more discoveries that have changed doctrine that was preventing you from getting the treatment that you needed and deserved than anyone else we've ever interviewed. This is the person that was responsible for discovering that ticks will spit in more than one bacteria into your system. Doctrine that had existed before her research indicated that you would only get the Borrelia burgdorferi spit into you. And she was the person that has now demonstrated that Lyme disease is a polymicrobial infection. This is the person who's responsible for demonstrating that the Lyme bacteria or the traditional Lyme bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi, has the capacity to change its shape, to shape shift and go into a cystic form so that your immune system will not be able to kill it. And this is the person who is responsible for demonstrating that this bacteria will join with the other bacteria that was already in your body that you'd been picking up for years and form a biofilm to protect themselves collectively from being killed by your immune system. And Rich, more recently, Professor Shapi was begged by a group of nurses to investigate breast cancer and Lyme disease. And upon studying 400 breast tissue samples, she found that every single one of them had Borrelia burgdorferi and connected Lyme with breast cancer. Further research found that endometrial cells and ovarian cells pertaining to cancer all had Lyme disease as well. She also talks to us about how genetics in our human bodies combined with environmental factors like infections, AKA Lyme disease, will trigger breast cancer and a wide variety of other conditions like autoimmune disease. Now this can be really scary and Professor Shapi provided hope to our listeners by providing solutions she found from her research to combat things like biofilm and also even things like breast cancer and Lyme disease, which she's currently working on as we speak. So folks, if you don't listen to any of the episodes that we've done in the past, literally any of the 350 episodes we've provided for you in the past, you can ignore all of them. And this is the podcast that we need you to listen to. You need to listen to this. You need to encourage everybody in the Lyme community to listen to this episode. And you need all of your friends who should be afraid of Lyme disease and they should be protecting themselves from getting bitten by ticks. They need to listen to this episode. So without further ado, we're really excited to introduce to you the Lime Rebel. Hello, Professor Shapi, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. And I I hope I have all the answers you're looking for today. Well, we, we are sure you're going to have all the answers that we're looking for. And, you know, our community knows that Matt and I are two of the biggest Lime geeks in the world. And we shared with you offline that having you on this podcast is like a birthday present to the Lime Geek. So we are we're ho we're hoping our excitement doesn't boil over and we get too excited when we're uh, when we're asking you questions today. All right, thank you again, and uh, and thanks for this great introduction. <laughs> so, uh, Professor, why don't you talk to us about your background? Um, I, I detect I detect an accent. So why don't you uh, why don't you share with folks where you uh, began your early life? Yes, I'm from Hungary, and uh, I got my PhD in, you know, in genetics uh, back in 
long time ago. And uh, and after I joined as a post postdoctoral researcher at Yale University when I was doing cancer research for 15 years. And I always wanted to teach. So I was applying for a teaching position and for a local university, which I got accepted. And, uh, and I wanted to teach and do my research and all my research was cancer related. And, uh, but somehow I couldn't get my grants and even worse, I, I like to hike. So you know what happened? I got Lyme disease. So uh, it was a rough two years. I just started my, my professor position at University of New Haven. And, and I, I was scared, I couldn't really teach, you know, I, I, I was extremely dizzy, all the symptoms which you all very familiar with, uh, I had. And uh, uh, doctor to doctor, and unfortunately I, I couldn't get answers. And I, again, I was, I was so ready to get this new position and, and you could imagine how I felt. And being a professor, obviously, the first thing you do is always what's going on here. So I checked the literature. What do we know about, you know, uh, this kind of condition? And Lyme disease showed up. And of course, knowing that I'm hiking, and actually I had tick bite. And um, so I asked for tests. It was negative. I asked for all kind of other, you know, potential, potential uh, answers. And it, it wasn't coming to me. So... Um, at one point, I was so dizzy to offer some uh, MRI, and uh, that shows some very interesting changes in my brain. And the doctor, the MRI doctor said, this is, looks like a Lyme, Lyme case. And that's how I started to finally get some kind of treatment. And But it's a long journey, another two years, and, and uh, struggling to, you know, to get better. And of course, as I mentioned, I wanted to know what's going on with Lyme, why why just not have my two weeks of doxy and I'm fine, yes? And, uh, and uh, reading the literature, it was very clear to me that we don't know not much about Lyme disease and how to really treat this ancient bug, you know, or really it was in, in, on this planet, in this planet for a long, long time. So, so at this point, obviously, my research is not going too well. You could imagine I have no money. But I said, all right, I know some molecular techniques. I want to know what is in the ticks. So the next couple of years, I was in the woods. I wasn't scared at this point because now I'm going after you. Okay, you, <laughs> you, you find me, but now I'm finding you. And we just, I mean, we collected a lot of ticks. And the, the good news about collecting ticks is it doesn't cost money. You go to understand, you go to the woods and, and have your, have your, you know, have you just a little canvas and, and you can collect we collected over five six thousand uh, ticks and uh, and uh, and we tested them so we found of course we found Borrelia that was easy but we found also all kind of other co-infections and I at this point I finally I said okay I have data I can publish again uh, and uh, nobody believed us they said our numbers are too high Nobody believed that that Bartonella can be in ticks. Now, now we know, but at this point, it was a it was like a very shocking result. And uh, and at this point, I was uh I start to get a little money, not too much, not too much, just a little money, so I can start to uh, start to culture Borrelia, the Lyme bacteria, and start to sort of look at it, understand it. And that's when when I uh, you know again read the literature. 
I knew about the different forms of Borrelia, so I was looking for that. I was treating them with all kind of antibiotics in a test tube. I want to see what's happening at this point with the, with those, those different forms. And that's how we discovered the biofilm forms. And that was that was so exciting that because this, you know, a biofilm form is the most resistant form. It could explain everything, it could explain those long-term, long-term symptoms for in some patients. So we started to uh, work on biofilm. Uh, first of all, we had to prove that Borrelia can make biofilm, and that took took some time. I think it was eight thesis uh, uh, students who worked on it. And at this point, I started to have a bigger lab. Uh, usually, I have eight to ten uh, uh, thesis students working with me, so it's a big group, relatively. And uh, and the last uh, now more than more, almost let's see. Uh, almost more than 15 years, I trained more than 100 students uh, in Lyme disease research. Wow, so, that's really cool. So I always say, I you know, uh, one person can do so much, yes? But when yeah. you train those students, you you can do a lot. You, you're cloning yourself. And some of them actually did stay in the field, so I was very proud of them. And so back to the biofilm research, so that that obviously we tried to find some antibiotics, antimicrobials, to eliminate this form, it was very frustrating uh, for years and years because everything we found it was always some leftover material, which of course it, it came back. Um, I'm sure you uh, familiar with, with we find some uh, alternative agents. You know, first you know some periwin herbs. After stevia came suddenly, people was like, "What stevia? Are you kidding me?" We also work with bee venom. Uh, which is which worked very well, but I always tell people it's venom. Okay, so careful with that. And um, and right now the recent research, of course, is keep continuing to uh, you know to understanding this biofilm form. Um, we had um, we did a lot of tissue work. So for example, uh, we published uh, a case um, with Dr. Ligner and Dr. Goldman about a woman. Who, who had Lyme disease and treated for 16 years, one six years with different antibiotics, very, very aggressively. And the minute she had some insurance problem and she couldn't get more antibiotics, she developed very devastating symptoms and actually died. And uh, uh, the silver line was that that we uh, we had access to her autopsy tissue. So that was that was one of the they're very important case when we, we knew this person had Lyme disease. We knew that, you know, that is proven. It was culture positive, CDC positive. It was positive. So we understood that uh, that it, it is not like a uh, case when we're not sure about it. Beyond and, denial. No one could deny that she had Lyme disease. Yeah. So, and uh, and uh, we published a paper in, as in 2019, and uh, we found uh, spiral heat and biofilm forms in every organs we studied. So that was, that was shocking. Uh, we published some other papers on skin tissues, uh, uh, which was very important because that's when we established our, our staff to see how Borrelia looks like in actual tissues. That was, that was super important. Um, uh, right now, actually, we we, we uh, started again. Not started. I started a new project, but it was based on an old project. So we had, we had some access to some mouse tissue, which treated with uh, infected with Borrelia, and uh, 
we ask the same question, what happened in the heart? What happened in the brain? What happened in the kidney? Can we find those biofilm forms? So just before we, I logged into this uh, podcast, I actually was working on some images in the heart and brain when we when we actually see this very big, very uh, massive biofilms in this in this mice tissue. Uh, right now, uh, the next step uh, is to see if how the biofilm uh, affecting the immune system, what kind of inflammatory markers it can trigger. So that's going on right now. And the latest, the latest is uh, I don't know if you heard about it that we. We, we asked the question, remember I have cancer, cancer uh, research background, whether Borrelia indeed can be found in cancer. Now, I know it sounds a little out there, but Borrelia was, was indeed found uh, in some uh, lymphomas previously. So uh, it was some anecdotal evidence that some uh, women who had uh, Lyme disease actually develop breast cancer very short after. So I was asked, um, the nurse, nurses was in, it was in Prague, it was in nurses, and they asked me to please look into it. Please stain some uh, breast cancer tissues for Borrelia if you can find it. So so uh, I actually purchased some commercial slides. You can, you can, you can purchase commercial breast cancer tissue slides. And uh, it showed up very early. So uh, this project is very actively growing right now. Uh, we purchased a lot of lot of slides, and we already have some statistical analysis. And looks like it definitely can be found in in breast cancer tissues. The latest one actually we looked at some ovarian and endometrial tissues. Again, we found them. So this is very very new. We tried to finish it. In the meantime, you know, bacterial infections and cancer connection is, is a very hot topic right now in our field. So I think that's also maybe um, can give more, you know, information to those to those, those women who are struggling with all kinds of, you know, not just with the with the, the classical Lyme disease symptoms, but they have issues with, with some hormonal issues. And and we don't we still don't don't know whether they are more risk for cancer. And and the cancer question is one that's very triggering to folks in our community. We've had we've had some discussions with Dr. McDonald, for example, on this topic. And and I can tell you that the the folks in the community who follow us uh, were very anxious about that. And many of them said, "Oh, it's bad enough that I have Lyme disease. Now I have to worry about I'm getting cancer too." So these the, these topics are really important for us to talk about so that folks can be prepared to determine what the best course of treatment would be, depending on how um, you know, their disease or diseases are presenting. But let's walk all the way back because you've given us sort of this, this overview of, of the brilliant work that you've been doing and, 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 it, and it was really exciting to hear the overview, but now, I, now we wanna break it down a little bit. Matt and I are gonna talk with you together about, uh, about some of these things. So you, um, <clears throat> You did some some uh, of your early research and uh, and 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 studies here, actually on Long Island, where Matt and I are located. I I know that you you spent a fair amount of time on Long Island, uh, and then then of course you went across the pond and you were working in Connecticut. Uh, and and I'm wondering, you know, with somebody with your background, um, you know, what is it that you knew about Lyme and and ticks and tick diseases, and what steps were you taking to protect yourself? from getting exposed to these diseases? Of course, I mean, again, I mentioned that uh, 
that we've collected a lot of ticks. So when you're collecting ticks, the first thing you have to protect yourself. Yes, you don't want to get bitten. So uh, so I we, we purchased those white suits, okay, with the with the duct tape, and it, we looked like you know some some aliens when we went to the woods. Yeah. But seriously, I do still like hike uh, with my family. So so we have a very strict rules. So uh, we obviously. Um, long pants, you know, the white socks, because you can see the ticks, the body is covered. Uh, we do use some, uh, uh, I'm not fan of DIT, uh, uh, but uh, we use some alternative, more like essential based uh, um, protection. They smell very nice, actually. And you have to apply it more frequently than, than, than some other product, but uh, we find it very effective. And, but it's even that when we get home, in a garage, we we take everything off, and goes to the goes to the wash wash and washer and dryer, uh, and uh, we take we take all showers and wash our hands. So wash our hair, sorry. So we take it extremely seriously. Right. And, so, um, so so Fessy, you you're you're making sure that you're you, you are enjoying the outdoors. Right? You said that you're you're in the woods with your students collecting ticks, and early on you collected. A, a huge number of ticks, five or 6,000 ticks that you were testing. And we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, that process. Uh, but even though, even though uh, you know, it is, it is uh, potentially dangerous for you to be in the woods hiking with you, with your family, you're still doing it and you're still enjoying the outside and still getting the benefit of being outside um, because you know that there are steps that you can take to protect yourself. So one of the things that you can do, of course, is that you can you can dress properly and and you don't have to be an alien every time you go into the into the woods, but you can dress properly and make sure that you're putting yourself in a position where you can see where the ticks are if they do ultimately do grab you. Right. The second thing you said you're doing is that you're putting on different forms of protection, some alternative protection which you're finding to be um, to be helpful. But the next thing that you're doing is you're taking all your clothes off. And you're putting them in the dryer and you're doing tick checks, right? You're checking yourself very carefully and you're showering so that um, now we know, of course, you can't wash ticks off if they're already biting you. But if they're not yet biting you, you can wash them off, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a number of different steps that you can take so that you can continue to enjoy the outdoors despite being in a tick endemic community. Actually, it was a year study who, who actually looked at whether the showering would have right after hiking. And actually, it was a positive study. So that's why we shower. So we, yeah. we, we, we follow, we follow, you know, suggestions. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and of course, so long, so long as you're not being bitten, the, the shower is going to be very helpful. And of course, putting your clothing into the, into the dryer is helpful because we know that ticks need moisture to survive. Absolutely. And if you, and if you're able to whisk away the moisture from the tick, it will die. Right. So two of the principles that we know about ticks is that they need blood and moisture. And if you can take away the blood long enough, they won't live. Although there are some studies that are suggesting that you live a long time without blood. Yeah, I've seen um, that. Yep, yep. Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, and of course, if you're whisking away moisture, so these are some of the great tools that we we can uh, we can use. Now, do you have any suggestions for tick checks, especially like partner checks? Do you, do you do engage in partners? So, for example, when you're out hiking with your family, um, you know, do you have someone check you after you come in, and do you check other people so that you have the you know the additional protection? Of, of having uh, having the the uh, the eyes of someone else checking you and the hands of someone else checking you. Absolutely, you know, because your back you cannot check is I mean, no way, obviously. But again, some areas like you know behind your ear, you know, uh, uh, behind your knees. So certain areas actually ticks ticks actually a lot. 
So so uh and if it's a nymph nymph bite, you can actually feel it. So not like okay, I just check myself. No, you really really have to have some help from somebody. Depends again uh, on a, on a hike. If it's just a very short hike, maybe maybe just a quick shower. But if it's a long hike, you went like for a whole day. Absolutely, you have yeah. to. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that people can't see because this is an audio only podcast is you were actually checking yourself yes. while we were talking about it, right. And what you're doing is you are rubbing your fingers across your body, right? It's because our fingers are very sensitive. In fact, they're, they're the most, the second most sensitive um, uh, sense organ actually of any animal in, um, in, in, in the world. And because our fingertips are so sensitive uh, and, and they're such uh, powerful sense organs, where it's actually your fingertips rubbing it through your body, uh, all over your body is what's going to find the tick more likely than, than you being able to see it. Because as you said, especially with these baby or nymph ticks, they are so small, they're, they're almost impossible for us to see. Very difficult to see. And don't forget the larva. I Unfortunately, we had some, um, I, I stepped into a, a nest and uh, we, we were wearing the suit, the white suit, and suddenly I just like was covered. So obviously we ran, ran out immediately. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, actually it was, uh, uh, I, I asked everybody just help me to take it off. And uh, of course it was, that was, that was a little scary. I have to be honest. Yeah, no, I, that would, <laughs> that would scare the bejesus out of me too, boy. If, uh, <laughs> if I had all those, all those, uh, all those ticks all over me. So that must've been a yeah scary moment. So so let's now talk about some of your early research. So you 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 have this journey with Lyme disease yourself, um, and it takes you almost two years to get diagnosed. And of course, um, that's that's very that's that's a scary concept. I mean, you you're a professor. You are you know you you are studying at some of the top universities on the East Coast. You are you are now running you know a department at um, you know one of the top universities on the East Coast. And you can't get diagnosed, and you have a background in medical research, and you're struggling to di to diagnose yourself. So, talk about why you think the there were so many challenges for someone like you, who's as who has as many resources as anyone. Um, why was it so difficult for you to get diagnosed? Uh, just I want to say something. I remember those times, and I remember I was I was doing cancer research at Yale. And I was doing breast and ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer, one of the deadliest cancer, uh, unfortunately. So anyway, so when when I was, can I get up from the chair? You know, I was so dizzy. I couldn't function. And nobody can find, you know, find anything. And I, was, I, I, I almost compared to myself, if I would have an ovarian cancer, at least they would know what I have. Not knowing for such a long time was, was so devastating. And uh, now looking back, I know that not everybody making, you know, uh, enough antibody, you know, uh, some people need needs more times. Uh, I'm sure you heard that some people months and months when they make enough antibody to show up on a test. We know there's now multiple species, which we didn't know, and some species doesn't show up on a test. And um, and the both sides are not always, you know, present. So this is this is this is, and one more. The symptoms sometimes is not that obvious. Not all everybody having just arthritis symptoms. Is I heard the weirdest symptoms with Lyme disease. So having these very obscure symptoms, not to not that test is actually not good enough to find, you know, maybe a low level of uh, of antibody. 
And the fact that is we have multiple species, you know, I'm pretty sure you heard about that some species doesn't show up on, on our or, or Western blood because a Western blood is, is based on one species of Borrelia, one species. Right. So let's 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 hold on to that for a second and, and bookmark this because it's important to recognize that there are challenges with getting diagnosed clinically. Uh, and there are challenges with getting diagnosed with uh, diagnostic tests. So let's focus on the on the clinical pieces first, because you're you're spending your time on Long Island and in Connecticut. You know the, the places where Lyme disease was first discovered um, as you know as an observational um, event in Lyme uh, Lyme Connecticut by interestingly a, uh, a rheumatologist from Yale University where you were doing your research. Um, and the um, and the uh, Borrelia was allegedly, and I'm going to leave alleged out there for a moment, was allegedly discovered uh, when a tick was dragged on Long Island from a professor at Stony Brook University, another place where you studied. So, I mean, I, I don't. The irony is so, certainly not lost on me that uh, that you were you were doing your research at Stony Brook and at Yale, and these are the two universities where. The observational data came to 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 uh, to define the term Lyme disease, and the and the bacteria was ultimately uh, discovered in a tick that was dragged by a professor from Stony Brook University. Yet you're sick, showing classic symptoms of Lyme disease, and you have difficulty even getting a clinical diagnosis, despite being at the places where this disease was discovered in the 70s and the early 80s. So. Give me your reaction to how you feel about that. Not only as somebody who is very resourceful as a professor and has all of the opportunities to get that, you know, the best healthcare in the world, but also the irony of you studying at the two places where, where this disease was first discovered and you weren't able to get a clinical diagnosis. Yes, the irony wasn't, 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 wasn't really, didn't fact feel good at this point. I have to be honest. <laughs> I felt like totally hopeless. And I felt like, you know, uh, you know, as, as a lot of other Lyme patients is, you know, it's all in my head and, uh, and probably I have something else searching for answers. Uh, no, it was a rough time. And, you know, I, in the, in the last, uh, actually expected 20 years now, I met so many Lyme patients. So we just dis always discussing our journey, you know, during, during those uh, periods and some of them feeling better and some of them not. Even some of them uh, have resources to explore different uh, treatment options, and still still don't feel better. So that's that's frustrating a researcher to, as you can imagine. So uh, yeah, sometimes it's difficult to look back to this time because I know how difficult was it, and every time I get a phone call, I I I those those feelings always coming back to me. I'm sorry, and 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 I'm sorry we're taking you through this. Uh, but it is really important for us to, you know, sort of identify these issues so that folks can be validated on their journey because so many folks have had these challenges with getting a diagnosis and family members not believing them and friends not believing them and doctors not believing them. And, you know, it's important for them to know that if it could happen to you, it certainly could happen to the rest of us, right? Between your education, your background, your training, your, your contacts, um, your work as a medical researcher, if you could be gaslit that way, and you have such a long journey, it certainly makes it, I guess, 
makes us feel better that it can happen to the rest of us, not that it should ever happen to anyone, right? So let's let's focus a little bit on the on the challenges with getting a diagnostic test because we've now we've now defined the challenges with having having a getting a a, a clinical test and and let's go back to the tick, right? So we know that ticks um, are are the um, are the preferred vehicle for Lyme disease to be transmitted, right? And and there are there are a couple of reasons why that happens, right? And Matt and I talked about this all the time, and Matt's going to start to come in and share with us, right? But one of the things we know about ticks is um, is that there is a protein exchange, or there are pro there are some exchanges that happen between the bacteria when it's in the tick's gut and the tick itself. And what the research is showing is that when when a tick spits uh, the uh, the the Borrelia bacteria into us. That that bacteria is now supercharged because it has uh, the you know the, the Borrelia has now uh, you know proteins that it that it has it, it's been transferred from the tick and now it becomes like a more powerful swimmer and a more powerful um, bacteria. So talk about that piece of this and 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 this sort of symbiotic relationship that's developed between ticks and these various microbes. And we'll talk about Borrelia first. Uh, it's a very interesting point because. Uh, there was a study, uh, they, they want to know how fast Borrelia can, can, can uh, grow when the blood meal comes in. Because, you know, uh, some idea it has to go through the salivary gland and that's how, you know, gets into the tick bite. My question was, okay, so, you know, when you, when you, when you have a straw and you're drinking your, your, you know, your lemonade or whatever you're drinking, the straw, there is a, there is a backlash, yes. So my question was so backwash, yeah. Backwash, yeah. So my question was, why it has to go through the salivary gland? I actually discussed it with Dr. Magdalene several times. Because uh, if you look at the data from the salivary gland, it, it looks like it's only a few, few spirohid, few borrelia can get into the skin. And I said, yeah, but I mean, how about what's happening with the regurgitation there? Yes, is it possible that maybe it's not just salivary glands? So that's that's somehow these people, the scientists, they didn't really answer this question. The other thing is, um, when you grow Borrelia, is growing very slowly in the lab. I mean, we have a very very heavy, rich uh, media to to feed uh, to feed Borrelia. It's still very slow. My student just sent me some pictures from, uh, we, did, uh, we we have some new culture and it's like a few here, a few here, but when the tick, uh, tick, uh, you know, uh, uh, bites and getting the blood, the growth rate is unbelievable. So between, uh, you know, between, uh, in a very short period of time, the, it is like like thousands of thousands of, of, of uh, spiral heat uh, appear suddenly. So it's definitely an amazing relationship between the tick, the tick environment, and Borrelia. So obviously they, they evolve together. They, they, understand, they understand each other. But again, I think even that part is, needs to be studied more. The other thing is you mentioned about the protein, uh, uh, protein changes. Borrelia can, can change, change everything within no time. I mean, you know, the cis form, how the cis form falls within seconds. For example, and and it can this whole outer out out uh, outer membrane uh, uh, antigens 
it's amazing how fast it can change and, and high from the immune system or be, become a supercharged bug. So again, this 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 bacteria is on this planet for a long, long time. Knows what to do. Professor, that's I did not know that when the Borrelia goes from the tick and the salivatory glands to the blood, that the quantity or the concentration increases drastically. So that was really interesting how you described that. Thank you for sharing that with us. We've never heard that on this podcast before. So one of the things that I know every single listener to this podcast is dying to know, what did the brilliant professor do to treat her Lyme disease once she was diagnosed, right? What did, when you got your diagnosis, now you're in the know, you're in this community with all the experts. What kind of treatment did you get to treat your debilitating Lyme disease that you realized you had? Um, so uh, the first one was was just a short term of antibiotic, which just didn't do anything. And after I was searching for answers and uh, I found some alternative treatments. Uh, uh, at this point, you know, the Samento Bentalo, I'm sure you heard about those Peruvian yes. herbs. I was on 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 the whole, uh, you know, cardium protocol for a long, long time. Uh, people always asking me, oh, so should I just have like a month? I said, I, I took me like two years, literally two years to, uh, but at this point, you know what? I, you can give me like B venom or any kind of venom. I would have taken it. I wanted to get better so badly. Yeah? So, so uh, to me, one thing about alternative, you know, treatments that it is, I felt like I'm in control. Because when you go to a doctor and doctor gives you two weeks of doxy and after you're done and you go back, I still don't feel good. And if you're lucky, maybe you get another two weeks of doxy, yeah, if you're lucky. But that's you done after you're just done. And and after you can run, you know, a million other doctors to find maybe, okay, I don't have Lyme disease anymore because I got the treatment. So with the alternative therapies, I felt that I controlling the situation. And it really was very important for me at this point. So you were quickly empowered as a patient when you realized the short course of antibiotics didn't help you, but you knew this was still there and you decided to go to the Cowden protocol pretty quickly, it sounds like. So Cemento, Banderol, and all of the other products are part of the Cowden protocol? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, at first I just took some, some of the others, but I felt like a month into it, I felt like it's something changing. And you know, when you feel something, you get excited. And, and I said, okay, just give it to me. And I, 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 run, I can take all day, all day. Just let me feel better. And I did a lot at this point. I, of course, you eat clean. Uh, I, I gently exercised. I didn't push my body. So it's very important. Uh, I juiced a lot. I made a lot of good, good Hungarian food, Hungarian soups. And I think one thing is very important. And people ask me what was the most, you know, just, just believe that you can, you can recover. I think that was very important for me. So um, while you're doing all this, are your, are your peers and colleagues shaming you or making you feel like kind of crazy? Because most, I would say most people that are professors or doctors sort of look down on holistic medicine and herbal medicine, right? So what were the, what was the feedback you were getting from your peers since you were this academic and you were leading these research studies in the cancer community and in the Lyme community? I didn't go too well, obviously. They, uh, at this point, I remember I, uh, I don't know why, I Googled myself and uh, <laughs> you shouldn't have do that. And uh, it's, it's a, uh, I remember one post is like, oh, she was such a good uh, uh, researcher at here. I don't know what happened to her. 
now she's doing this crazy research. So that was that was the feedback. But again, especially after I really felt like I'm feeling much better with the alternatives, I that's that's just you know just confirming that that is something there. Yeah, and, and little did they know that your work in cancer research and your work in Lyme research would be brought together, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And that's real, it was really exciting to read that research on, on the internet about all the work you're doing. But I do want to talk more about your, your progression here, right? Because now you're starting to pivot from cancer research to now, you know, studying ticks. And it sounds like you said earlier with Rich that you started to identify that Bartonella can be transmitted from a tick and infect a human. But at the time, people didn't believe ticks could infect humans with Bartonella. And you were the one who said, hey, guys, there's something here. And you brought that to light. So is that is that what we heard earlier? Yeah, they, they didn't even believe that Bartonella can be in the ticks. But it wasn't just Bartonella. We, we, we ran a lot of different, at this point, you know, not much money. Oh, I, I My budget was ridiculously low. So I, I only can do one one kind of experiments, collecting the samples and what kind of experiment. But with, with this limited money, we still fund lot of different species, probably heard of, you know, mycoplasma, Ehrlichia, um, of course, uh, Babesia. We found the species and, and one of the study, which again, nobody wanted to really acknowledge that we found multiple species in one take. And it's, now, now the studies are coming out and uh, now it's more accepted. At this point, they were like, no, 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 no. Your number is too high. It is all just some kind of, you know, lab art, art you know, uh, I don't know what you're doing in the lab. Everything positive. No, no, it wasn't everything positive. And actually we had very, very good negative controls. But again, again, I felt like nobody wants to hear this. That's how I felt. Nobody wants to hear that this, this, uh, um, you know, ticks in Connecticut, for example, is loaded with Borrelia and loaded with other other bugs. So, you know, of course, that that is that is scary, but but also um, it makes sense about it makes sense that many of the researchers didn't want to acknowledge what you are finding uh, in your lab, and that is that Lyme disease is not a single bug. It's a whole bunch of bugs, right? I mean, it really is a polymicrobial infection. And because the researchers who initially had discovered this disease in this, you know, in this vector in ticks um, had, uh, had identified just one uh, bacteria, uh, you had to move the needle and you had to move the research community away from what everyone believed at that time, which was there was only one one bacteria in the bug, you're finding now multiple bacteria. And one of the things that, you know, Matt and I wanted to talk to you about today is that we have come across some research where, uh, where there was a, there was a, a professor who had discovered that a, um, uh, a tick could have uh, up to 200 different um, uh, bacteria, viruses, and, and protozoa in it. And we've only identified 18 now. Now, of course, when you were doing your research, when you first started, uh, you know, I mean, and, and that's what, a you know, an unbelievable trendsetter you are, you are fighting against whether or not there was just one. Now you, you show the world that it's more than one, that it's multiple, um, you know, and, and, and now as it turns out, what we're hearing is, well, there are only 18 bugs that can be inside of a, a inside of a, um, you know, a tick. So I'm wondering if you can like share with our community uh, that, you know, you know, one of the reasons why people are getting so sick and one of the reasons why it's so difficult to diagnose, coming back to the, you know, the diagnostic part of this with the test, is that there are many, many, many bugs that could be in, in a tick. 
many of which was, have not even been discovered, and many strains of each one of these types of bugs can be inside the tick. I mean, it's coming from a technical approach because, you know, we were trained that you check for one sink, you know, at one time. And the good news is now we have better better understanding that uh, in a in a in a bacterial you know viral uh, uh, fungal community they are they are interaction so they live together so it's not just bacteria not just fungus not just viruses and now we have the technology to check that so we have uh, we have for example we can we can. Sequence, you know, the 60s ribosomerine, which uh, for example, going after bacteria, we can sequence everything what is in the ticks. And we, we, we and it's, I know the studies are coming out, this is absolutely beautiful, and I'm loving them. So, so, so again, maybe it was a, tech, a little bit of technology, or maybe just our mindset that that needs to be changed. And you know, five, 10 years usually, when, when, when you, when you make able to make those kind of changes in, in, in the science field, unfortunately. But five, 10 years for a, for, a, for, a, for a human is a long time, yes. It is a long time, especially when people are really sick. I mean, having, mm -hmm. you know, asking people to wait 10 years uh, before they can take action in order to heal is just a terribly long period of time. And in many cases, you know, folks can suffer, uh, you know, damage that may be irreversible if they're not able to take uh, you know, you know, earlier intervention. So it, it's a lifetime for many people if, if we have to wait 10 years. And that's one of the things that we find to be you know, very frustrating as, as folks who are, who are you know, following this. Uh, Rich, so I, just wanna, I just wanna jump in and just make a comment on that because although it's very frustrating as somebody whose life was you know, significantly changed because of Lyme disease, I just wanna thank, you know, thank you, Professor, because if it weren't for your persistence and hard work, we would be even further behind in research. And I don't know that I'd be where I am today with my health if it weren't for your hard work and research and advocating for us in the Lyme community. So I just want to recognize that piece of it and thank you for your hard work and persistence because yes, it's frustrating we're not further along, but we wouldn't be where we are if it weren't for you. So thank you. Absolutely. And and so, and so no, no, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, want to, I want to join Matt in thanking you because if it weren't for people like you who are willing to buck the system, you had no money, you had you had very little support from the standpoint of, of, of having staffing and um, and but you you as first a patient and ultimately as a researcher were willing to buck the trend and you were willing to say no all of you Ivy Leaguers are wrong mm -hmm. it isn't just one bacteria it isn't just one bug it's more and you literally changed the world here so I want to thank you for that as well it's really uh, you know people would not be healing at the rate they were if it weren't for you so thank, thank you for you. being brave. And thank you for being willing to stand up against, uh, you know, the, you know, what was the, you know, the, the standard belief. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, yeah, I, I can tell you some stories what happened. They want to shut down my lab, for example, very, very, very badly, very badly. At this point, uh, uh, I had a very open-minded and, and very uh, science-oriented uh, chair who getting emails after emails that, that that lab has to be shut down right now. And uh, he just said, no, she's, yeah, she's maybe a black sheep, but we need black sheep in, in, uh, in science because we cannot just always go in one direction. We need to check out some other, other alternative ideas. Um, the, the biofilm idea also was extremely controversial. I, I got emails from, you know, established scientists that I never seen biofilm uh, in, in, let's say, in infected mice. I said, did you look? And uh, and I said, can I look? 
would you mind to give me some samples? I'm more than happy. I don't want anything. Just just give me some samples, some leftover. You know, you you infect the mice with Borrelia. Give me some tissues. They never did. I kept asking. But finally, one one researcher said, "I helped you with that. That's why I had some samples." So that's why actually the mouse mouse data never got really published because it was always on the back because I didn't have enough enough uh, tissues. That's why actually the the, the human data got published first. And it's thanks for the for Austrian uh, dermatologist who said, I, I want you to check this out and, and, and I send you some samples. So I find help all the way, but, but most of the time I, I find a lot of resistance. Yeah, but Professor, I'm, I'm curious, how did you stumble upon the biofilm concept, right? Because it was, you're the first person that brought this to light. This is another huge concept that prevents people from healing and people need to know about. And you discovered it, you found it. So can you walk us through that aha moment when you realized, wow, there are biofilms and they make treating Lyme disease far harder. We'd love to hear that discovery moment you had. So at this point, back in back in that, you know, first in the woods, collecting ticks and doing some 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 simple analysis of or what could be in the ticks, that we want to see Borrelia. So uh, I found a very old microscope, that, but it worked. And I, of course, we got some culture. At the beginning, we couldn't even culture it because it's turned out a little bit more, more than to just put it in, in, a, in a culture media. But we figured it out and I said, okay, now let's see what happens if I add uh, penicillin or doxycycline. What happens to this bug? Is, uh, can I kill it? And uh, so we started to add, you know, in the culture to different antibiotics and we, Again, it's a very simple microscope, but you're able to see those those morphological changes, which which I read about it, and I was very very impressed by that. Uh, I remember I want to make the cyst form, so uh, Bronson is a scientist from Europe, and I emailed him. I said, "How can I make cyst? Form? I want to make cyst from that, but quickly." Professor, can I interrupt real quick? Can you, for our listeners, explain that we know you're an expert in the morphology or the, or the different shapes mm -hmm. of the Lyme bacteria. Can you explain for our listeners the cyst form versus spirochete yeah, form so we absolutely. have a general idea of what absolutely. they are? So, so uh, uh, Borrelia has lots of different forms. Uh, the main forms are the spirochete, which is actually beautiful. I know, I know that sounds a little crazy, but under the microscope, if you see it, you will be, you, you will, you would be like, what? And, uh, and what, uh, Early research, again, research from Europe found that if you start to an antibiotic, but even just not even antibiotic, any kind of manipulation with, with the culture, Borrelia within, within like 10 seconds, crawl into this, this very like a wrong kind of bodies. It is amazingly fast. If you want to watch it, go to, go to YouTube and Google Borrelia and oh, I guess cyst form or round body. There's a video which I always show on, on my conferences because I love the videos. So it shows how quickly it's respond to the environment. It's amazing. So, so that's that. And if you look at the culture, you see that the, the beautiful spider hit the form, but always little specks next to it. And I never understood that. I thought it's maybe dirt, you know, who knows what is it? Yeah. And uh, and we had a very special strain of, of, of Borrelia, which is green, green fluorescent. So so when I looked at under the microscope, this green fluorescent Borrelia, I see the dirt. So it is Borrelia. So, so this form is actually in, in the culture all the time. I always uh, call it as a backup form. This is like uh, 
you know, you make a backup for your computer. This is made a backup for whatever happens, you know, the, the, if there something happens in the environment, we have this population who is going to just going to survive it because it's protected and, uh, and able to come back um, uh, one point. So that was one other question. So, okay, so I used the sysform, which I learned how to do it. And uh, I said, uh, how long I have to wait to come back? Back to spirochete, right? Yes, so the spirochete turns into this round body soul cyst. And, uh, uh, and again, I talked to this uh, European scientist and said, just change the media, remove whatever you, you put in and, and check every week. But I promise you it's going to come back in three weeks. It was 21 days, 21 days exactly. I couldn't wow. believe it. And I see spirochete again. Spirochete. So it was like, what? How do you know that exactly three weeks? I guess he probably did a lot of experiments uh, uh, this time frame. Um, so that's one. Now, there's also uh, other forms, and we don't really understand that other forms. Uh, they called the, the cell deficient forms, for example, which is we need to learn more about it. And when you look it under the microscope and you start to grow uh, Borrelia and let it grow, uh, and when it's getting confluent, you start to see that they're gathering. So this part of he start to find the, the little space together. And that's called the aggregate forms. And at this point, when I looked at the aggregate forms, I, hmm, I said, what are you guys doing there? Are you guys meeting? <laughs> uh, some planning some kind of, you know. Some evil plot. <laughs> evil plot. So and I was, at this point, of course, I'm reading literature very heavily and uh, looking looking this the pictures of, of these aggregate forms and what I'm seeing, uh, uh, you know, and literally I said, hmm, it's such a thing as biofilm. And I wonder, I wonder you guys making biofilm here. And at this point, um, Dr. McDonald and I sort of sharing information. So he sent me pictures. I look at what I found today. There was one, that was when we uh, published it. There was one picture, so two aggregates, big aggregates, and it's like a bridge between them. And that was the aha moment because I said, they're talking. They are talking. And I only know one form which can talk is biofilm form because the whole talking and quorum sensing, this is, you know, this is what they do. They like quorum sensing is you texting each other, okay? If I that's how I explain to my story. That's insane. <laughs> it, it, it it is insane, Matt. So 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 let let's 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 bring this back to um, why it is difficult to diagnose this disease and then why it's difficult to treat this disease, right? Because one of the reasons why it's difficult to diagnose this disease is because with traditional testing, they're looking for antibodies, right? Yes. But of course, this, this, this very sophisticated bug goes through various forms of uh, of shape shifting so that your immune system is not able to respond to it. And because your immune system is not able to respond to it, there are not going to be any antibodies to test, even though this, this, this bug is still in your system, which 21 days from now, it'll go back to being what it was before and, 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 and reproducing and attacking. Okay. It is mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> and it even more because I read at this point, I, I, we didn't have, um, we didn't have like SARS, we infected like mammalian SARS, like, you know, uh, let's say uh, right now we're using this breast cancer SARS, we're infecting with Borrelia. But I read like uh, some, some, uh, some fibroblasts, which is, you know, skin SARS, uh, can be infected by Borrelia. But I never really seen a good image of it. And, uh, 
one of the things we really wanted to know whether Borrelia can go inside the cells. Because we always talk about it's going to just maybe make biofilm in the, in, in the collagen-rich tissues and some, some spirit going to come out go to and travel somewhere else, make another biofilm. But they said, can you go inside the tissues? Because that would be interesting. So there was there was few papers suggesting it. So it, we had two different cell type. One was a neuron, neuron, neuron cell type and one was the breast cancer uh, cell type. And we... We both uh, uh, we were able to pr uh, prove that they can actually go inside. Um, if you look at the latest paper, we used a, a very special microscopy techniques which can sort of look inside the cells, and we found and we found Borelli right there. And what is very interesting because I heard something called that um, called the intracellular biofilm, which means biofilm inside the cells. I said no way, no, 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 it cannot be, no, no. And I'm looking at this, this microscope images and I can see similar aggregates forming inside the cells. So this is this is this is the multiple layer of craziness, yes. It, it this is creativity, nuts. right? I mean, of the of this bug. So so we've now you've now taught us that the that the bacteria has a relationship with the ticks, right? And there is exchanges of protein between the tick and the and the bacteria. The, the the this now supercharged bacteria gets sent into our system. It gets into our system and it goes through these various processes of shape shifting so that our immune system cannot cannot kill it. Well, before uh, that, when it hits the blood, it increases in quantity significantly. We learned right, also from it, professor. Right, yeah. increases in quantity significantly when it when it comes out of the well, whether it's in the in the salivary gland or not. That's a, some question, right? Yeah. It now it now it now goes through this process of of shape shifting. But there's also this relationship between not only between the Borrelia themselves and they're coming together in this biofilm, and I want to hold on to that for a second, but they're all they also have a relationship with these other bugs that you were the first to argue and then ultimately prove that are being spit into us. So these other bugs are working on us and 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 helping to keep each other get keep each other from being killed by our immune system, which is now responding to all this. And now they come together and they are forming a biofilm. Can you can you describe what a biofilm is? And can you also describe for us whether or not it's just Borrelia that's in the biofilm or are there other bugs inside the, the, the biofilm? And what impact does the multiplicity of bugs inside the biofilm have on what's happening with those bugs inside the biofilm in addition to protecting it from the immune system killing? So think about biofilm is like a city. What we do in city, we protect, you know, we protect maybe a city wall or something, yes? But also very importantly, in a city, you have to share, you know, a shared uh, task, yes? So you have to have different population doing different tasks. You also have to bring in food and you have to, you know, expel the waste. So there's a lot of things going in a city. So when, when, when we looked at, we had a very fancy microscope uh, at this point, um, we were able to look at how the city is built by Borrelia, which was absolutely beautiful. They like a crochet kind of structure forming. And, and we started to see, we looked at every day, we started to see little holes in the structure, which of course made sense because that the holes can be used as a channels, yes, to bring in food and, and, and expel the waste. But we also seen multiple layer protection. So this is the wall covering this biofilm, and this is this is uh, it was known from some other biofilms. They are slimy, 
they are they call the mucopolysaccharides, like sugar kind of sliminess. And when I talk about biofilm, I said, you know biofilm, uh, how about you just don't clean your shower for maybe a week? Get it slimy? Oh, yes. And you know how, what, what you do? You have to take the bleach and the, and the brush and brush it off. It's not going, go, going away very easily. Or, you know, a lot of biofilm in our mouth, unfortunately, you know, and that's why we have to cool very high, you know, good hygiene. And um, brush your teeth. You brush your teeth and uh and but unfortunately biofilms also finding you know those some kind of implants which uh, i have a family member unfortunately who got a knee replacement and and got an infection they could not could not cure it and that was that was a biofilm kind of infection and and this is one of the things that we still have to understand how, how to deal with this biofilm. And back to that, biofilm is very rarely monospecies. Monospecies means only one species. Usually it is multiple species. So we did, remember the skin biopsies I got from Austria? Yeah. So fortunately I had a lot of samples. So I was able to do a lot of experiment and I was able to see not just Borrelia in a biofilm form in the skin samples, but we started to look at other bugs and we find this chlamydia species and H. pylori species. And the, and the, re, the how they, 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 they embed themselves into the, into the uh, uh, Borrelia biofilm is super interesting. Like chlamydia, uh, it's exactly in the middle. And, and, and almost feels like it's using, uh, I call the iron castle, which is funny because Borrelia doesn't use iron. But chlamydia does. So I always wonder, the chlamydia is there to make the iron castle because iron actually is one of the well-known um, material for other biofilms. But Borel doesn't have, doesn't use iron. So I said, oh, so you invited your friend here who's bringing the iron. Now, now you can make the iron castle, okay? And again, H. pylori story. Uh, we still don't understand exactly what H. pylori does in this biofilm, but obviously they 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 plotting some part, you know, to to see how to survive uh, 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 you know the environment. How many more? I mean, we can just keep looking and looking and looking. So, Professor, what what I'm wondering is, you know, and again, this 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 bacteria is very resourceful, right? In developing relationships with ticks, developing relationships with other um, types of, uh, of microbes in the tick. And then when it comes into our body, it, it seems what you're saying is, it's then gathering other types of microbes that are already in our system that didn't come from the tick, that our body had been managing as part of our microbiome. And they're now taking, they're now combining forces with these other uh, microbes, which weren't dangerous to us before, but when they get into the biofilm together, they're now supporting one another and now supercharging each other because they're now exchanging proteins. And they're not only, they only have the ability to sh uh, shape, uh, to change their shapes, but now they have the ability to change their essence by having more proteins and essentially, um, I guess, evolving within this um, in this biofilm so that ultimately if the biofilm breaks down, it's a very different microbe and the immune system may or may not have the ability to recognize this evolved now microbe. Um. This is, this is super important to understand what exactly happens inside the biofilm. This, this synergetic relationship between these different bugs, I think that we need to grow appreciation for that. 
we always think about to kill one bug. Yes, no, no, no. I think, especially when it comes to biofilm, uh, I always look at uh, Borrelia as a driver. I think is one of the most ancient bacteria on the planet. So I think that able to make, again, the iron castle, this is a perfect refuge for all those bugs. I probably they were swimming with joy, you know. Finally, finally we find something which is which is so, such a such a structure that we can survive it for a long, long time. So uh, I looked at other other biofilms, you know, other structure. I don't see this kind of um, very almost like a like a architectural planning, you know, how to make this 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 whole environment for us that we all survive. I just want to ask a question about because beyond the severity of these biofilm, you taught us that biofilm can exist in the blood and also we know from Dr. McDonald in the brain, but then you touched on, Professor, that it can go inside the cell. So not only did you teach us that Bartonella can be given from a tick, which nobody believed, not only did you discover biofilm, and now next you discover that Lyme itself and biofilms can be intracellular inside the cells, which is something that you discovered as well, right? But what does that mean for us and how we can heal from Lyme and, and our overall health? Because if it goes inside the cell, is it likely that that cell is going to die? And what impact is it having on the human body? And what impact is it having on the bugs to survive and thrive and make us even sicker? Right. I know that, I know that a lot of you uh, right now saying, oh my gosh, just, I don't know what's going to happen here. It is not inside of my brain, inside of my blood, inside of my cells. Um, Again, we have to understand this bug first, okay? So I always say, understand your enemy. You cannot do anything until, okay? So knowing what it can do, it is it is extremely important because maybe maybe the antibiotics are not the answer here. Maybe we really have to rethink how we how we approach this uh, even clinically. And uh, there are there are, you know I'm pretty sure you heard some alternative which is which is working totally different ways than you know try to just kill the bug with with some some antimicrobials. So I think we have to again I I I would love to see more research. Uh, again, those research are expensive because you know I don't I I did a lot of test tube research and I think that that can take use at one point. But but after you really have to look at this bug into into an actual organism to understand. You see how many different places it can hide. So um, so we need more research for that, and and we need to see some some other alternative ways to to get this out from from uh, from those hidden places, and and after maybe hit it with some kind of strong antimicrobials. But although we need more research, you partnered with Columbia University, and, st- and you mentioned this earlier, right? This this person you were monitoring had Lyme and was treating for 16 years with antibiotics. And after the passing, you found that there was still Borrelia biofilm in the tissue, right? So, and and your your studies are, are happening and they're being reinforced that antibiotics alone probably are not going to cure somebody of Lyme disease because 16 years later, this person still had Borrelia biofilm in their bodies after passing, right? Yes. I mean, obviously we still... But would be nice to have non-antibiotics. Yes, that would be a dream. No, you just want to go there. This is I remember I, I was presenting at Islets, and and I think it was a little controversial. It was very early in the morning. I said, I understand we all work in chronic Lyme, but would it be nice if the two weeks antibiotic would work for for us. <laughs> and I remember the face of the audience was like, what? <laughs> I think I, pu- I pushed the wrong button at this point. But I mean, seriously, it would be nice to find it. Now, there are, there are, uh, we still, we didn't give up on antibiotics, okay? 
So uh, we're looking for antibiotics, which might be able to penetrate inside the cells, penetrate to the, the brain barrier. It's still hope there, but at the same time, we, we have to start to look some alternatives on how to get the mouse from the cells, how to, how to reach these hiding places. For biofilm and it's collagen embedded, that would be a tough one. That would be one of the toughest. Collagen, you know, that rich uh, matrix embedded biofilm. But you've done some studies, right? You keep talking about alternative medicine. You mentioned earlier this whole, and, and this one, I, when I first got Lyme, I remember hearing about the stevia extract as being a potential, you know, treatment for biofilm and, and deep Lyme disease. And a lot of people telling me, oh, that's crazy talk. You know, that's not, that's, that's witchcraft, right? But you're telling us that there's some evidence behind this, that this is actually an effective way of breaking down the biofilm and, and treating people that have chronic Lyme. So can you walk us through that transition of your research of, of how you even discovered stevia and, you know, what your findings were about how it worked and how effective it was in breaking down biofilm and helping patients that have, you know, chronic Lyme? So, so you know, the, the Trojan horse? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the question is, so we know that, that the biofilm is covered with lots of protective layer, but cannot be totally isolated because they need to eat. Yes. I mean, most right. cells are sort of a dormant stage, but still, I mean, they need some, some, some food and they have to expect the, uh, the, the, the waste. So my question was at this point, First of all, how to wake up? Um, how to wake up those dormant cells? That was, was very important for me because if it's the dormant or antimicrobial, not gonna work. Antimicrobial working on on, on on growing cells. So that was my one question. I said, and how can we send it in? Okay, how can it? So how can we get the antimicrobial inside it? Because if if we, we cannot get inside, there's no hope for, for here. And that's when the Trojan horse comes. So. You know the the whole story that you you hide it as something else, yes. So uh, the first question, remember, the first question was how to wake up those dormant cells, and that's I read a paper. It was a, a Nature paper that they eat add sugar. And when you say dormant, you mean the the round body cells, the round bodies and and cell deficiency, all kind of different cells. Some people call the persister cells. Uh, just inside the cells with a very low metabolic state, okay? Sleep, I call them the sleepers, okay? All right, so uh, so how can I wake up the sleepers? Because I don't wake up the sleepers, my antibody not gonna work. So, uh, so it was a study that uh, they, they add a little sugar, different kind of sugar, to, uh, it was an E. coli, actually, culture, not Borrelia, but it's a, but same idea, how to kill it. And after that, the antibody. So the whole idea was wake them up with sugar, Okay, and after hit them with some antimicrobial, and they said it's worked. Okay, so that I got very excited. Okay, I said, guys, we're gonna wake them up. Uh, so, and in this study, they use different kind of sugar. So I said to my one of my students, please go to the grocery store and just pick up whatever you can. I have some sugar here in the lab, but whatever, everything, the fake sugar, everything, just just bring it to the lab. So of course she bought whatever she found, you know, um, and stevia was one of them at this point. And, uh, and we're doing a study and the very, very, very first uh, experiment looks like stevia is not just waking them, they're killing them. I said, how could be? Wow. This is, this is a, you know, at this point I knew about stevia, like, uh, you know, some put in, put in my coffee, if, you know, to, to make it sweet. So I was reading about it as a Japanese leaf and, uh, in Japan, they use it for antimicrobial for centuries. 
So it's not the Japanese people not just using it to to make the 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 tea sweet, but they take it as antimicrobials. Any correlation to Japanese knotweed, or am I totally going off with that one? I don't know. I'm not <laughs> sure. And uh, so I said, I said, oh my gosh, it's my working as a as a torsion horse because Aurelia thinks it's food, and it's not just food; it's antimicrobial. So, so at this point, we we jumped on it and uh, we uh, we published it. We had a huge study. We compared it actually with anti, other antimicrobials, which didn't work as well. So, uh, I I know some of some of your audience probably probably using that stevia already in the in in the protocol. And uh, I I again is it I don't have any clinical study. Doctor Horowitz has some study on it, and he's still using in his clinic. Uh, he believes that helping even with his antibiotics uh, treatments. So uh, uh, right now, uh, stevia is, is included in the cardon protocol uh, next to some entobenderol. Actually, we, we just about further this study. I want to see if stevia would help to other antimicrobials, because I want to see whether it's true. But again, there's again test tube experiment. And as I mentioned, I really want to get out from the test tube. So. We had this crazy idea that you know we cannot afford mice; it's very expensive. Uh, of course, we can't use human for obvious reason. Uh, and uh, so we had a zebrafish facility on, on our department. So, so we actually uh, did uh, finish a project when we put Borelli into zebrafish. So this is still uh, still under because some issues, of course, is not that obvious, but. But we need some kind of model system when we can really study this this bug in in a in a natural environment, not just in a test tube. Before we move on from the stevia, I just want to ask because Rich and I always look for low cost, low risk options for people listening to this podcast who are looking for ways to improve their health and continue to fight tick-borne illnesses. So are you saying somebody can go to the store, buy stevia extract, and take a certain amount of it, a tablespoon, et cetera, whatever it may be, and that can actually have a positive impact on their health? Um just for the more study, again, or study test tube study, so it's not a clinical study. We found that the powder doesn't work. We tried to dissolve the powder. It didn't have the same effect. So something about when they make the liquid form, so it's, I guess, some, some active ingredients in a liquid form. We test a lot of liquid forms. Most of them worked. So, so you can practically go to the grocery source. Uh, Again, this this is a low cost option, okay? And you could try it, and let's see how you feel. Okay, I never push any kind of you know protocol on anybody. No, but put it in your herbal tea that you're taking. Put it in a, a cup of coffee, right? And you could potentially be helping yourself. If not, you're just getting a little sweetener in your in your coffee, your tea, right? I mean, it's a low cost, a low cost, low risk tool to try. I feel like Japanese people believe in that that they actually they use stevia quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's let's stay with this this path that we're developing here, where we have this um, this very sophisticated bug, as you have said, this ancient bug that has uh, existed on the earth long before we did, um, and has been going through this process of of shape shifting um, and recruiting relationships with with ticks, recruiting relationships with other bugs in the tick, recruiting relationships with bugs in our body so that it can go through the process of, of, um, of surviving. And, and let's talk about the antibiotic loop. Uh, one of the things that Matt and I uh, talk about uh, often is one of the challenges that we, we often see is 
someone takes antibiotics, they feel better, they go off antibiotics, they go back in the antibiotics again, and they feel better, and they go off the antibiotics, and they come back on them again, they go off. And, and what has us always anxious about that, Professor, is that at least, you know, when, when Matt and I are talking about this, is, of course, what's probably happening when we're going on and off of antibiotics is that the bugs are changing, right? Because we know that, we know that they're, they're, they're changing when they're in the tick. We know they're recruiting other bugs inside of us and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're exchanging proteins. And ultimately, if you stay on that loop where you're just going on and off of antibiotics, it, make, it seems to me that what you're going to do is you're going to grow antibiotic-resistant bugs in your system, and then the antibiotics aren't going to work at all. So what, what is your thought about, uh, about the, the on-again, off-again uh, relationship that many patients have with antibiotics? Oh, I, I know so many patients who cannot, cannot, you know, cannot stop taking antibiotics. Same, same, vicious circle, yes. And seeing, seeing that case, which we, which we described, you know, the 16-year-old treatment uh, um, uh, case, I never forget that I got just a few slides um, from uh, Dr. Goldman just to check it out, what's, you know, what's going on. And I, I, you know, just a few slides, you know, this is, this is an autopsy case. I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, what to expect. I, and it was a liver, liver slide and uh, we stained it for Borrelia and it is massive, huge, unbelievable structure shows up. To the point, I didn't believe in it. I said, it's too big. It is fake. No, no, maybe we did something. So we, we, we I said, okay, we're going to repeat this in a different, um, uh, different pro protocol. And we kept repeating it, it just keeps showing up. And after, of course, send uh, for some brain samples, some, some heart samples, and this extremely massive uh, structure showing up. And again, you know, I had just the skin samples before, which we had biofilm, but they were small, you know, delicate. But this was like, like a monster biofilm, which that's why I was almost, uh, I couldn't even believe at the beginning. We, uh, fortunately, we had uh, access to a lot of materials, so I was able to like keep doing different techniques, you know, um, to be sure that what I'm seeing is real. So this this patient took antibiotics for 16 years, on and off, same as you know most most uh, uh, patients, and and as you see, it's just practically grow this biofilm bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, now, I'm of course uh, I'm not blaming any physician or anything because that's that's what a physician can do just to work with the knowledge they have, and and I know her physician was really passionate about her health, so I find you know that you know uh, he was really trying with different antibiotics, you know whatever whatever you can think of, and she was actually doing okay for sixteen years, not great but okay until you know I told you some insurance problem and that cannot get antibiotics. So 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 looking back to this case is is really we really have to appreciate you know what this bug can do and and not just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Now is the stevia will be the game changer maybe will be some other uh maybe some interesting new antibiotics maybe uh Maybe some alternative, you know, I mean, probably heard about Thrive therapy and some other therapies. We don't know yet. But again, again, uh, people shy, shy away from this kind of, you know, alternative uh, way of thinking. And and uh, I don't blame them. And they want to feel better. They feel better when they take antibiotics. But again, the vicious circle starts over and over again. Yes. Yeah. 
But is there a risk there, Professor, right? Because on one hand, we want symptom relief, but on the other hand, we don't want to kick the can down the curb. And I feel like antibiotics may be kicking that can down the curb because to Rich's point, we're making the bugs smarter. They're becoming antibiotic resistant and it's harder to get effective antibiotic treatment over time. So uh, looking at this you know, from a zoomed out perspective, I feel like something that penetrates deeper, like a holistic approach, whether it's stevia, whether it's the Cowden protocol, and maybe it's a combination of antibiotics with those things, it'll get deeper. So these bugs hopefully will become, you know, less and less and less and not become supercharged to eventually make us even sicker in the long run, right? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? It's interesting, you know, uh, we talked about microbiome, how important the healthy microbiome in the system. And we had we had a, uh, somebody from Yukon uh, who was one of the experts in microbiome and I was, of course, went to lecture, and after I was able to talk, uh, I said, you know, I'm doing Lyme disease research, and I was wondering how important a healthy microbiome, you know, in uh, for a patient. And he looks at me and said, you, you know about fecal, fecal, fecal transplant? Yes. And I heard about it, but I, you know, I mean, of course, I heard about it, but I didn't know too much, uh, you know, how it can be used. said, I had a, I had a student who had Lyme disease, and nothing worked. So, okay, that's going to sound a little gross. Okay, so so everybody hang in there for a second. But, and she had a brother who is healthy. You know what she did. You know what she did. I know where you're going. I'm afraid yes, for you to yes, say it. I don't want to even say it, but you know what she did? And she said it worked. She felt much better. And I know that now some some places you can actually, uh, you know, uh, some uh, that's one of the treatment options. And I actually I know uh, it's not just for Lyme, but a lot of this is now is is some something which is start to get a little uh, appreciation. Okay, they now is in pill form, so a little bit differently. So it's not as as gross. <laughs> no, but professor, you're right. I mean, we read an article in the last year that came out where chronic Lyme patients they studied their gut microbiome and they found a very high level of one microbe that isn't present in healthy people and a very low concentration of another microbe that should be high in healthy people. And they're trying to, now they think they're finding a correlation between concentrations, concentrations of microbes in the gut and chronic Lyme, because that has an impact on your immune system. I'm sorry, that has an, uh, an impact on your immune system's ability to go back and fight the microbes in your body like Lyme disease, right? So I think there is a connection there, but we've barely scratched the surface to understand what actually is going on in our gut microbiome which does represent 70% of our immune system, right? Absolutely. And interestingly, we did do this kind of, you know, uh, microbiome analysis on the skin samples. Remember, we had the skin samples. And uh, we sent it to this company who, who does the bioinformatics part, so understand what is exactly in, in, the, in the result. And the first thing they emailed me and they, they, they said, it's amazing how little, little, um, a little representation of, of normal bacteria in these samples, and 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 you know you know the the distribution between certain certain species was crazy. They didn't even say where do you get these samples? Okay, so it's definitely something something happening something happened with the microbiome, and I think that's why I say alternative has to be explored. This is the alternative. I would love to explore it more and more. And this was the skin microbiome you're talking That's about. The so this skin is one. Yeah. so yes. you you now found the skin microbiome to be drastically different than a healthy patient, and now we have other studies proving that the gut microbiome is drastically different. So obviously there's a connection there, right? And that, and thank you. We we haven't heard that piece about the the skin component on this well, podcast. Matt, can, we, can we stay for this one more second because we we're we're now making this connection between the use of antibiotics and and the impact that it's having on your on your 
uh, on your biome, right? We, we, we did explore with you, Professor, that using antibiotics over and over and over again is, is likely creating superbugs. But part of the reason why it may be creating superbugs is not only because the, the, the bugs are going into the either cystic form or they're going into the, uh, the um, uh, biofilm where they're now shifting uh, with other, other microbes and changing their form, right? But ultimately, they just have to have one that beats the, meets the, um, you know, one, one reformation of the, of the bug. And now, now the antibiotics are not going to work anymore and it's just going to take off, right? But the other thing that's happening is that we're also changing our, 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 our microbiome and the antibiotics, because they're broad spectrum antibiotics, are in many cases changing our gut and, 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 and what's happening in our gut. And now what Matt is just pointing out is part of the reason that may be happening is because of the tools we're using to try to kill the bugs. So we have this sort of uh, multi-level chess going on here where you know we're taking one step we're, we're, we're causing the bugs to change and now uh, a, a, as a result of going into going into the, the, the biofilm, we're now we're now impacting our, our, our gut microbiome, which is now having an impact on our immune system's capacity to succeed. And the cycle is increasing the likelihood that the bugs are going to survive and we're not going to ultimately be able to beat this thing because we're using we're overusing a, a, a form of treatment that over the long term, probably is doing more harm than good. You know, I always say that, you know, ultimately your immune system gonna cure this bug, okay? We can't just help the immune system. Now, if you're, as, as we mentioned, that our microbiome has a huge connection to our immune system. So uh, my grandma, a uh, little small village in, in Hungary, always said the most important thing is that you eat fermented vegetable every day, every single day. They didn't have the, you know, the, the, the probiotics, capsules yeah. or anything. They made in the kitchen, you know, uh, different kind of fermented veggies. So I grew up with that. So since today, um, and I think that's one of the reasons I was able to recover because I was really, really uh, uh, was very big on that, you know, uh, my microbi microbiome has to be healthy even during the treatment. So uh, people asking me what happened. I mean, I said, of course, the juicing, the, the, the Hungarian soups, and I, the, the fermented veggies. I did a lot of sauna, sauna, sweating, sweating. I said, so, you know, release all kind of junk from my system. Eat very hard. Detox. detox was very important to me. I had some some supportive detox work, just, you know, be sure that my liver can handle all those detox. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, I think it was a very, very uh, comprehensive approach. And again, the microbiome has to be has to be there, has to be taken care of because it's not going to work. Whether you're using the fecal transplant or you are using the fermented veggies, but you have to think about that. And I, I'm curious on your comment that the immune system alone will not get rid of the bug, right? Because some, we know at least 15% of the world population has Lyme based on that study that came out a few months ago. Many people have Lyme and go symptom-free. So they get acute Lyme and they move on. And now there's that debate, well, is their body managing it and it's still in their body, but being suppressed or are they, or are they healthy enough where their immune system can actually eradicate the bug before it gets disseminated, right? So what are your views on that, Professor? Are you, are you saying that the immune system alone cannot eradicate even Borrelia by itself and that it's going to be dormant and just managed? Or do you think that the immune system could and it's a combination of all the stuff from the tick bite that's, that our immune system can't overcome on its own? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a multi-layer question here because we know that from the 
the tick spit, there are some some uh, some some uh, some agents which can suppress our immune system. That's why you get in this big, huge, uh, you know, uh, uh, pool size. But at the same time, uh, I you know I, rem- I remember I was walking on, on campus and they you know I'm doing Lyme research and it's one one guy coming one of uh, says. I got so many tick bites when I was when I was growing up in Connecticut. I never got sick, and I was like, probably you you had a very healthy immune system, and I think our immune system is not healthy anymore. That's why this this pandemic right now, or I call it pandemic, some people epidemic, whatever. There's a lot of too many cases, and uh, and uh, again, uh, or you know, treatment is not helping our immune system, or lifestyle not helping our immune system. Uh, Dr. Horowitz always said that, uh, you know, he always has this big uh, 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 questionnaire for the patient. He said 90% of cases, they come down with symptoms with some, some kind of tragic event in their life, if they life. And I just, I was thinking at this point, so what, what was a tragic event in my life? And I was like, oh, of course, my mom died. Okay, so, you know, the whole stress and everything comes from the immune system is you know, Practically gone, and now the bug can flourish. Yeah. So, but again, it's multi-layered because you know the the tick saliva have the immune suppressive uh, uh, agent in it. Borrelia actually has has certain ways to trick our immune system. You know, you know when you have a test, you have you they're checking for IgM and IgG. You know, these yep. are two antibodies. Yeah. Yep. The IgM should should at the beginning when you get the infection and should go down, and IgG comes up. Number one questions I remember in Lyme conferences, why do I see IgM, the early one, still in a patient who are suffering for years and years? And there's a switch when you the IgM turns to IgG. And something might be able to, uh, something do with this switch and it's not happening. It's crazy. Of course, these patients say, uh, the doctors, oh, your IgM is still very high. Oh, you get, uh, uh, you know, you got bit again. And it was like they told me that actually not because of IGM, but but because I didn't have you know uh, I didn't I couldn't recover fast enough, and I said no I couldn't even go out the outside I don't think so happy again. <laughs> so anyway, so what I had to say is that the, the immune system connection to borrelia infection and on the immune suppressive um, uh, properties of the tick saliva and 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 the borrelia itself. It is it is mind blowing. I I I listened to so many lectures when they looked at the immune system, and I I do teach immunology, so I should able to understand. But it was so many strange things happening in this experiment. My mind was just just like I don't understand what's going on here. So, Professor, I'm wondering if if the biofilm conversation we were having gives us clue into why we're seeing IgM repeatedly, even if you're not getting reinfected, because what may be happening is. When the bugs come out of the biofilm, they, they, they're now they're now a new type of bug because they've had this exchange of proteins with all of the other bugs that are in the biofilm. And now your immune system is reacting to it as if it's a new infection because it's seeing a new bug as opposed to the one that it was responding to before. Yes, that's I I, I was thinking about this theory. And I think we, we have to revisit that because that's that, that definitely is I this IGM. Extreme high IgM titers is just crazy in these patients. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think your, I think your biofilm discovery is going to be the gift that keeps on giving, right? I mean, yep. I think the more we, the, the more research 
that they, you know, that you do and, and, and your colleagues in, you know, in the research community do on biofilm, I just think you're going to see that, you know, really be the gift that keeps on giving. So can we talk about biofilms and whether or not the immune system can break down biofilms? Because we've heard from, we've heard from other um, uh, doctors that we've interviewed on this, on this uh, program that, um, that the immune system generally can break down biofilms and it's actually when we have immunocompromising events or the immune system is compromised because it's overwhelmed by all these bugs that the that the uh, the immune system loses the capacity to break down the biofilm. What is your what are what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I was I was thinking about that. You know, obviously we have macrophages, we have those T cells and other lymphocytes. So we have a, a complement system, obviously. So there is when you look at you know, immunology. This is, this, is, this is mind blowing what what our uh, what our immune system can do. So I always thinking why it, why is it, it is biofilm such a challenge for them? Of course, you could say it's a multiple layer like the city, the walls, and everything. But I mean, we have macrophages; they can eat a lot of stuff, <laughs> and uh, it is it is something about I think what we need to better understand how maybe whatever comes out from this biofilm either mimic something else or, 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 or take the immune system to a direction, which, you know, obviously not gonna, not gonna attack the biofilm. This is, this is definitely has to be the next big, big investigation. What happening here. So professor, are you, are you suggesting that your thought is, although we need to do more research that the biofilm is sending out these little soldiers to confuse the immune system to not be able to conquer it or 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 mop it up with the macrophages. What I'm hearing from you. So so we have one paper a couple of years ago. This is when we infect the neuron cells, but we not just infect the neuron cells. We made um, we made this little vesicles. So Borrelia can make this outer they call the outer membrane vesicles, which means practically is that the outside the membrane is sort of folding off putting whatever they put in there, in the bag, okay? And just sending the soldiers, okay? Not, not even soldiers because they're just particles. So I never forget it, it was a it was an electromicroscopy image, one Borrelia, one spirohid, and they can, electromicroscope can visualize these little particles. And it's like, just think about like a wedding, uh, wedding gown. Uh, it's like, like it, it, practically went beyond, beyond, you know, uh, the whole structure of the spider heat and looks like it's like this spitting out this, this thousands of thousands of vehicles. So, so my idea was why are you doing this? What is, what is the advantage of it? What is in the vesicle? Actually, it was a very, very nice European paper just published uh, last year that they said it was a lot of things in this vesicles. So I think that sort of like, just think about it, sending these vesicles everywhere it's confusing the immune system totally. Okay, they're going after this is this is they're going after you know the wrong thing. Okay, now we, we also know these vesicles actually can penetrate a cells. Okay, so that's what the paper about what happens if you infect these neuron cells with spirochete, the Borrelia, or just sending the vesicles. And what we find a very similar events happen in neurons. So this this called the OMV out out outer membrane vesicles. I think that's that's one of the things. Uh, I have a new student who fascinated by that, and she's gonna she's gonna explore this a little bit further. She wants to she wants to see what exactly the function of these vesicles. 
That's wild. So that's just a spirochete itself. Never mind once it forms a biofilm, it's even yes. more powerful than just a regular spirochete, right? And and is this vesicles coming out from the biofilm? We don't know. We don't what, know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. My my science knowledge is very limited. What is the word you're saying that the, the varicose? Can you just spell that? I'm just fascinated so, by that term. Think about just little little balls, okay? It has membrane surrounded, okay? And uh, uh, now we know that inside they have those OSPE, OSPC, you, you heard about inside. Oh, the outer surface proteins, yes. Yes, yep. the outer surface proteins, some other unknown proteins. Uh, looks like it's like, you know, uh, it is it is packed to do something. Okay, so we still have to understand what 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 is packed, what exactly the function of. Is it just sort of confused the immune system or it is more? So wow. Matt, remember when uh, Dr. McDonald showed us the slides of the uh, of the of the bacteria being like really dirty, like spitting dirt out and spitting all kinds yep, of stuff out. Yep. And, and he kept saying it's a it's like a really dirty bacteria. And I was just wondering, um, Professor, whether or not maybe one of the functions of this bacteria spitting out so much dirt and maybe all this all the all this dirt coming out of the uh, of the um, biofilm is to is to uh, is to make you you toxic so that your immune system is not able to function because of the toxicity levels that are that are developing with all of this all of this junk that's either in the cells or out of our cells and and just just sort of overwhelming us with garbage that you know we're going to need to be able to process either through movement or through saunas or through other detox methods. It was always controversial whether whether you know Borrelia has toxins, you know, like other bacteria, and but this 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 little balls, little vesicles. Um, Doctor McDonald told me, and I I'm sorry I forget how how does he know it that this vesicles has a lot of high manganese content content manganese. It's okay. So what does it mean? He said if it's very high manganese, actually it's toxic to 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 the cells. Mm. And he said, if you look at manganese toxicity and Lyme symptoms, they are really, really connected. Wow. So I don't know that he furthered this. Maybe next time you talk to him, maybe ask him about that. That's uh, mind blowing as well, man. <laughs> but definitely, as you see, it's like too much going on here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so they, so they, you know, in this, in this battle between uh, the bugs that get spit into us by the tick and the immune system, Seems like these bugs have these these little bombs that they get to 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 uh, to send out, and they're they're uh, they're they're destroying the cells. Yeah, um, you know the brain fog. I don't know who had you had brain fog. That's a great transition because I wanted to ask you about brain fog. Oh, brain fog! That was bad. That was bad. That was like like you you behind the curtain, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It was that's finally cleared up, but it took me a long, long time. And again, back to this. I don't know that this, this is coming from this manganese toxicity or any kind of toxicity because it feels like tox your, your brain is toxic, yes. So uh I see a lot of people have a lot of you know speculation what is the brain fog for, but one thing I have me is the detoxification. So it's definitely I, that's why I, I believe that's some kind of toxin, but I don't have proof for it. Okay, just let you know. Oh, just based on your personal experience, totally, personal, yes. you believe, and you many, believe. many others in the community as well, though, that, are supported that. That's what was happening with you. Look, can we talk a little bit about fatigue now? I mean, you talked about the, you know, the, the fatigue that you had and how, how, you know, how fatiguing this experience was. And 
I'm just wondering whether or not the toxicity issue gives us some insight into why there's why it's such a fatiguing or 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 well fatigue is such a you know a powerful element of uh, of this journey. Do you think toxicity may be the answer to that as well, or do you think maybe you know because this our cells are our power plants, right? We we have mitochondria that are our power plants. Yeah. Um, you know, are, are we fatigued because? The bugs are competing with us for resources, so we don't have enough resources. Is it because we have biofilm inside of our inside of our cells, and 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 it's interfering with the ability of the mitochondria to work, or is it a combination of toxicity competing for resources and not having resources, and this biofilm inside of our cells just gunking up the you know the capacity of our cells to create the energy that we need? Um, of course, fatigue is number one. I have number one symptoms. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's multi-level multi again. I think the immune system probably tried to kill this bacteria and working extremely hard. Uh, who knows, the, tox, tox, the toxic vesicles, you know, uh, uh, to, uh, make, make our, 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 our body very, very dirty, yes. And now we know that it can actually, in, inside of the cells can be Borrelia. So we don't know how it affects mitochondria or any other, other very important organs inside the cells. So I think it's multi-layer. That's why I think the fertigome is the last one it, it, it leaves. That was my, and my, my experience. And I talked to people and they said the fatigue is going to stay for, for some time. Even other symptoms looks like it's lifting. Yeah, so I, I mean, it it it, it is. You know, Doctor McDonald always calls us a diabolical bug. You know, <laughs> and, and and I have to tell you, you know, I mean, the more we're talking about it, I mean, the sophistication of this of this ancient, you know, bacteria is 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 mind blowing. The way it the way it functions and the way it 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 it, it works, um, you know, in conjunction with uh, you know so many other uh, you know bugs and 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 processes that it's you know it's you know it, it is very very difficult to um, you know to to treat it just, it just simply isn't another one of the things that I wanted to put on your radar is I I saw recently that one of the I think it was Dr Zhang's uh, research uh, where the where the um, because we, you know the Borrelia is a corkscrew uh, bacteria it actually screws into different parts of your body, right? And then what happens is when the immune system or some other tool uh, cuts off the head of the, um, of, you know, the top of the, um, the corkscrewed um, bacteria, what happens is it just, because it's embedded in other parts of the body, what it does is the head just sort of grows back on again, right? It just, and, and that's, it, it survives because it's screwed into you know, in, into tissue or screwed into something and you're only like, sort of like cutting off the top of it, but like grass, it just grows back again. And it's one of the reasons why it's persisting. So um, maybe this is a good transition to your persister, um, you know, uh, conversation because another place where you're one of the leaders in the world on this, on this topic, because, you know, again, we, we, we had this, we had this general belief in the research community that Lyme could not persist. And it was, it was, you know, some of the work that you've done that where, again, being the black sheep that you are, uh, you know, we, 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 we started to get clues into the to persister. And a lot of people have sort of followed now in, uh, you know, in your wake where they're proving, you know, um, that uh, uh, persister cells exist in the monkey models and in the, and the, and the mouse models. But you were one of the first. You were one of the first people to, to um, you know, to uh, argue for persister cells. So can you talk to us about that and how, 
how um, you know you came you came to you know those conclusions with that research. Um, so so when we when we treat the treat the bug with different antibiotics, you know it looks like everything is clear. And I said, oh no no no, let's just let's just wait. Let's just wait here. So you remove the antibiotics. Sometimes you don't even remove the antibiotics. Just just leave the culture alone. And one week, two weeks, they come back beautifully. Uh, I have one experiment because um, I at this point I was like, no, no, we have to kill this bug. There's no way. So it was a culture. It has some aggregates, some biofilm. Most of a mixed culture. I said, okay, we're gonna take this three weeks period. We're gonna add doxycycline every single day, every single day for three weeks and let's see what happened. So three weeks later, we have a stain which stains live and dead cells. I said, I want to see just dead cells. There's no way, there's no way that is anything can survive here. And I have this uh, figure, I always show it to conferences. Three weeks later, yes, a lot of dead cells is red, so good, okay. But you could see green spider heads. You could see some green, <laughs> some green aggregates. It was mind blowing. So at this point, I said, "Okay, you always have to check long term." So when we when we did the experiment, we stopped the treatment, whatever this, you know, stop. I said, "Now we wait. What happens? Are they coming back?" And they always came back. There was a paper, uh, Dr. Eric Hodzik. Um, uh, he Emir Hodzik. Sorry, uh, he uh, treated uh, infected mice. No, 30 days, uh, and he monitors some molecular biomethod, bio what happens inside the mice. And uh, first it looks like looks like everything is gone. And so, but he's a very patient man. So every month he's checking the mice. By, by month eight, again, show signs that were coming back. So, so I, that was 2014. When I read the paper, I said, that's it. Okay, we've proven. We are persisters. Now it's nine years later, we still argue on that. Yes, we still argue on that. So I don't know. I mean, of course, Monica Ambers has a lot of interesting study with the monkeys. I don't know how much more we need to, to tell people that that body can persist. Well, Professor, there's over 700 peer-reviewed scientific journals and articles proving Lyme persists. And we actually have every single one of them on our website at tickbootcamp.com. Because again, it's, you know, it is mind-blowing that people are still debating this. I mean, you've proven it. Other people, you know, you were the first person. You broke the mold. You were the controversial person. 700 other people have proven this, but yet we're still having this debate in the medical community. I I, I don't want to lose sight of your, your work that you're doing now, right? Because you're not transitioning your original breast cancer research and your Lyme research, and now you're, you're bringing it back with your current research to investigate Lyme and breast cancer. And something that really fascinated me, I just want to read this for our listeners, is you said that you'd heard of people who suffer from Lyme disease and then receive a breast cancer diagnosis soon after. You wondered if the Borrelia bacteria was in the breast cancer tissue. You said your research group examined slides with several kinds of breast cancer as well as healthy tissues. The normal breast tissues were completely negative for Lyme disease, and you found evidence that the Lyme disease was present in the breast cancer tissues, right? So it sounds like you've made a connection here that whether it's a big chunk or just a small subset, there are a portion of breast cancer patients, and you said earlier on, endometriosis and cervical cancer patients who have Lyme disease potentially as the trigger causing that cancer, right? I mean, this could be controversial as well, but you're always the person to bring this controversial stuff to light and it comes true. So I want to hear what your thoughts are on this. So, so think about cancer. So why we die from cancer? If the cancer would stay in place, 
okay? A good surgeon just cut it out, yes? The problem is spread. And I was like, your own cells suddenly spreading. Why? What, what's the reason? I suppose you said, oh, baby, you know, nutrition. Somehow I never really, I, I saw something else is behind. And actually, it, it, is, it is not just me who is now black, black sheep, but there are a couple of very recent papers when they see that but, uh, not just Borrelia, other bacteria can go inside the cells, inside of uh, you know, normal breast cells. And uh, making changes, that's what also we see when we infected breast cells with, uh, with Borrelia, making some changes which can actually trigger metastasis. And I said, why, why is that? And the doctor's like, of course, what, what a bacterium wants? Spread, yes? Always, okay? And now you have, I always call the zombies, okay? The zombies, you can go in and sort of rewrite the whole thing, hide inside, so you save that. Actually, if you know, breast cancer cells also does a very similar thing than Borrelia, it actually revives the environment and make it immune suppressive, yes? That's why we have now the immune therapies for, 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 for uh, cancer therapies. And so this is another paper that showed that uh, actually making changes that the, that the cells can, can faster move, you know, finding the blood vessels, get into the blood and spread around the, the body. But that's exactly what bacteria, bacteria wants to do. Okay, so so when when I seen this that that, that Borrelia can able to to go into uh, breast breast cells and actually we had evidence it, it, is is it lab lab uh, evidence so it's not a, you know human patient but it makes it more aggressive uh, it was our first paper so um, it makes the breast cancer more aggressive you're saying yes, right even 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 a, a cancer which which is actually a triple negative you know that's a bad one that cell line was triple negative already aggressive. We put Borrelia and became more aggressive, which was like, it was so, a so what does more aggressive mean? Meaning the cell division is faster? Actually, it was on the cell division, which was very interesting because that's what you think, that growing faster. No, yeah. it was, we had a technique which measures how fast uh, the, the cancer cells go through a membrane because that's, that's the invasion and metastasis. So we used this test and uh, we with infected uh, cells and uninfected cells. And it was like a huge difference. It's in the paper if you want to look at it. And we had some other techniques. Of course, we had some molecular techniques to see those cancer genes are activated and they are activated. So the most important what we see, it is, it is, it is a protein which, which cleans, uh, you know, if you want to move, you have to be sure that you have room, yes? Right. So there's a protein called metalproteinase. It's a protein which does that. And the most significant result was that Borrelia able to upregulate this protein so the cancer cells can move. So it, it, it looks a lot like what's happening when the, when the bacteria is in the tick, because what's happening when the bacteria is inside the tick is, is the, 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 the protein exchange supercharges the bacteria when it comes into, when it comes into the host and it, it, it becomes a more powerful more powerful bacteria. And it looks like when that bacteria gets inside of cancer cells, it has the same impact. And I don't know if the process is the same or not, but 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 the impact is the same. And we now have a more aggressive, we have a more aggressive cancer. Now, of course, we have the other piece of that, of course, which is the immune system is 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 being compromised 
by the battle that it's having with Lyme and it's shape shifting and it's and it's reformation and it's and it's working with all of these other all these other bugs and spitting so much garbage into us and making our toxins. So it's sort of like the the worst of, of both worlds where it's 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 supercharging the cancer cells and then it's and it's having an impact on the capacity of the immune system to manage the cancer cells in the first place. You know, this is this is obviously would like we would love to see what exactly this process. So right now, uh, two paper is final final revisions. Uh, what we did, uh, we infected this cancer cells, and we did something um, called RNA sequencing. So practically, what we did, we sequenced everything which is which, what is uh, expressed in the cells. And the results are super interesting. Like chemo-resistant genes are showed up. Uh, genes uh, for, of course, inflammatory markers showed up. Too much, right now, too much information actually. <laughs> this is our problem. So, and uh, so two papers are going out the next next months uh, to looking for these different markers to better understand what's happening here. And you mentioned this, uh, Matt. You mentioned this um, the tissue paper, the cancer tissue paper. Uh, we we now a, we we spend the last couple of weeks going to this fancy fancy Yale uh, microscope center. They have amazing microscope there, and uh, to be able to visualize what exactly happening inside the cancer cells, especially those we find positive for Borrelia. So it will be a ton of ton of uh, amazing images gonna, gonna come out. Probably like we finishing the semester right now at UNH. So probably I'm gonna spend the summer to write up this paper. So it will be hopefully published very soon. Well, that's really exciting. That is, that is really exciting. Yeah, one of the things, Professor, that I found very interesting that you you had uh, quoted, and I wrote this down, is that you believe breast cancer is a combination of genetics and environmental factors. And that's the second time we've heard this in relation to Lyme and other things, right? So in the autoimmune world, we have genetics and then we have environmental factors and environmental factors can be the bacterial infection itself, Lyme disease. It can be things like mold toxicity. It can be things like heavy metal toxicity. But when you're, when you have genetics that are predisposed to certain conditions, whether it be cancer, autoimmune, and then you have Lyme, it's almost like dogpiling again, where mm -hmm. the bacterial infection is supercharging the gene to say, I'm going to express you this way. And you're going to get really sick from cancer and you're going to get really sick from all these autoimmune diseases, right? And together, it's just sort of dogpiling on on your body. So it's so multifaceted. And the way Rich said it was, I think that 3D chess game that you have to play. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like I never thought about it. Cancer is the same way where it's just genetics and environment, where environment can be an infection of Lyme or a wide variety of other tick-borne illnesses, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I teach genomics. So I, I would teach, you know, uh, you know, or, or genome is 99.9% is identical, but those 0.01% what makes me, makes us unique. And unfortunately, when I say unique is, you know, too sensitive to certain conditions. Okay. So I know you, you know, we talked about some people get tick bite and they're fine. And some people just cannot recover from it. So there were, there were some studies showing this, this, uh, this different changes, you know, in, in our genome and try to correlate it with who gets, you know, chronic infection. But I think that also needs to be a little bit more explored because a doctor, if you, you know, you get, you get a tick bite, maybe do a quick panel on you to see if you, the lucky one, yes, or you will be the one who, who might need a little bit more serious treatment and follow up. 
Yeah, so I mean, so if you if if there was if there was some genetic testing that could be done at the same time that, or maybe even earlier than we could do any type of of uh, you know testing for you know for the disease, you may you may treat that one patient much more aggressively than you would would treat another patient. Absolutely. I mean, this is called the personalized medicine. And I'm teaching genomics right now, I don't know, more than 15 years. And I remember 15 years ago, guys, the personalized medicine is coming. It's coming. It's still coming, unfortunately, 15 years later. Yeah. So yeah. I would like to see more, you know, to, to really taking into your genetic profile when, when, when a physician makes decision about your treatment. Well, you're teasing me right now, and we promised you we wouldn't keep you on for more than two hours, but I would love to have you come back so we can have that conversation about genetics and epigenetics and the adaptivity of the, sure. um, you know, of, of humans. That, I would love to do that, but I'm not going to take you there tonight as much as uh, as much as that would be a, a, an additional birthday present um, uh, that you could give me. Uh, and it's not my birthday yet, so maybe we'll have to have you come back in June. For no, no, we have to find your birthday. Yeah, <laughs> we, we can we can have that genetic and epigenetic uh, conversation because that that is something we've been spending a lot of time, Matt and I, thinking about and talking about. Uh, so we are we are within seven minutes of our uh, of our commitment to you that we wouldn't keep you more than two hours. Uh, and, and this has been fascinating. So we we do have to spend another couple of minutes thanking you. Uh, and, and the reason we have to spend another couple of minutes thanking you is because you are literally changing the world. You are putting people in a position where they understand the disease that they have and we're redefining this disease, not as a, an infection that's caused by one bacteria, but it is a polymicrobial infection. Uh, you have changed the world because you're showing why this is a chronic disease and what the, what the persister basis is. Uh, and you're putting us in a position where we're getting closer to understanding this disease so that we can we can start to come up with solutions, not just individualized solutions, which of course is the dream, but at least some general solutions for people who are in the general population. And uh, we absolutely love you for all the work that you're doing and all the help that you're giving. And people like Matt would not be in the position they were in if it weren't for you. So we we, we can't end this podcast without, you know, without gushing over how much we value you and the work that you're doing. And if you weren't a black sheep and you weren't a tinkerer, and by the way, if you had money in the beginning, remember you came out and you had no money. So you had to be creative and resourceful. And because you because you were um, creative and resourceful and had to be, you made the discoveries that no one else had. And now you've built the foundation that everybody is building on top of to get us to a point where we can understand this disease and start to treat it. So uh, we, we just can't thank you enough for everything you've done. Yeah, I just want to add to that because on behalf of the entire chronic Lyme community, I mean, look, in in several years ago, the estimates suggested we were over 2 million in the United States alone, chronic Lyme patients. And in the world, we know that number is probably larger. So there are millions of us that are looking to improve our health and struggling because there aren't regular doctors who can help us. And it's research like yours, Professor, who are allowing us to get our lives back. The health I've been able to attain because of your work has been has been miraculous. And again, I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for you. And many people who have reached remission and have gotten their health back wouldn't be where they are if it weren't for you. So I just want you to know how many lives you've saved. We're talking millions and millions of people that you've either saved or are going to save through your research. So I am just filled with hope and joy. We knew this was going to be a brilliant episode. It was far better than I thought. And I'm getting emotional, but I just, we need more people like you. And thank you so much, Professor. Thank you for your kind words. And again, as I mentioned, I'm training those 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 students, and I try to, you know, spread spread this knowledge as fast as 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 I can. Not just for, through publication or presentation or even podcast, but 
that those those trainees who understand chronic chronic diseases, maybe they're not gonna work in Lyme disease, maybe they're working, who knows, maybe they're working in COVID, chronic COVID now is a big thing, yes. Yeah? So, but but we have to we have to create this kind of mindset that we don't know everything and we have to be open-minded. Thank you for listening to your Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Ava Shapi. For our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you want to learn more about Professor Ava Shapi, please visit her website page at newhaven.edu. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp is created to take by Blueprint. It has been inspired by the information been shared with us by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com forward slash bike to view the Blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on the podcast platform of your choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.